Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. At the end of the day, some of us just identify as comics. I love Patton Oswalt said one time, he said, they don't understand. We don't do the stand-up to get the film roles. We do the film roles to get people to come and watch our stand-up. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. It's been estimated that the number of stand-up comedians that can sell out theaters and consistently kill is perhaps only about 200 comics worldwide. The amount of focus, artistry, and experience required to perform alone on stage and keep an audience laughing for an hour is nothing short of astonishing. It's a privilege reserved for an exclusive fraternity of comedic talents. Today's guest is a stand-up comedian and actor who's appeared on television in blockbuster movie franchises like Deadpool and in numerous comedy specials. Although he's had a taste of Hollywood success and the paychecks that come with it, lately he's chosen a different path. Rather than chasing acting roles on the West Coast, he's made a conscious choice to live in New York City and continue to refine his skills as a Manhattan stand-up comic. His dedication and experience are evident in his recent comedy special, Dear Jonah, where his ability to effortlessly engage with the audience and adapt his material in real time takes center stage. So what motivates someone to walk away from a lucrative role in a hit television show and instead subject themselves to the challenges of crafting new stand-up material and the inherent risk of bombing in front of comedy club audiences? We'll find out as we sit down for a chat with this eccentric comic and the man responsible for bringing the cringe-inducing antics of Ehrlich Bachman to life on HBO's Silicon Valley. Today, actor, comedian, writer, and philosopher, Mr. T.J. Miller. All right, you got some water? You good to go? Yeah, I'm excited. T.J. Miller. Good to see you, man. Hello, sir. It's been a long time coming. I know uh, we had a lot of false starts. But we made it happen. And more importantly, you know, we've had a lot of lowly musicians and skateboarders and surfers. And yeah, even Tony Hawk. Even some comics like, on here. But I think you might be our first legitimate movie star. So, Well, 
That's, that means you have really low standards. So it's a good we way had to kick it off. We Thank had to you. Up, I hope our, our accommodations are up to your standards. I'd up, upgrade. I constantly game a enjoy bit. <laughs> constantly enjoy being in a, a a studio, an actual professional studio at one Rockefeller Center. In fact, yes, it's just slightly larger than my apartment in Manhattan. In the beautiful newsstand studios in Rockefeller Center. So I had to step it up for you. You so. did have to step it up. I love it. Thank you so much. And I sort of from the get go was going to. I always dress up. Uh, for podcasts that are audio only. And so this is a real mistake because now I realize that this is video as well. But I now I guess you can get the joke that I always wear a bow tie and Kate, that's my wife person, Kate said, um, she said, well, wear a long tie. A bow tie is kind of, I think, a little much. And I said, well, it's funny, you know, because I won't be on camera. She goes, well, you know, and I said, what about a long tie, this tie? She goes, oh, I love that tie. And then I went to tie it and I don't, remember how to tie a long tie. And so suddenly I flash back to when I was like 14, getting ready for the dance. I was like, what's going to happen? Oh no. And so this is the long tie that I'm hiding. It's just <laughs> the teeniest, tiniest. It's nice. I don't know if you can really see it, but it just comes up to right above my navel. And, uh, and so I did my best with that. But yeah, hello. And well, you dressed up as well. For all you podcast listeners only out there, you can definitely appreciate the smell and the sound of uh, the lapels on this, yeah, right. on this gentleman's exactly. attire. So, Hopefully the smell indeed. Well, actually, it's funny you brought that up. So speaking of attire, you know, you and I met at a Christmas party uh, last year. And a really fun, but over, pretty over the top Christmas Very over party. the top. But we met because you you spilled a drink on me. That's right. Um, you know, movie stars are just like us. They, <laughs> they, <laughs> they are totally unaware and end up making a dick move at yeah. Christmas parties. Yeah, exactly. So, but it was good. But that was a conversation starter. But, you know, other than that, you showed up and it was definitely cocktail casual, I guess you'd call the attire. But you had on a, uh, how should I describe this? I would say like a shiny gold Sequin. A gold sequin tuxedo. Is, as I well, it's a, it's a jacket, a suit jacket from... Memphis, Tennessee, from where uh, Elvis, it's Elvis's clothier, Elvis Presley, wow. always went to that clothier. I, I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, and I hope so. Um, so the clothier that he went to had this, and it was the craziest of all the things. And I said, I have to put this on. And I put it on thinking it might not fit. I mean, it looks so silly. Put it on. It was so comfortable, so comfortable. And so I kind of looked at Kate and she looked at me and I was like, oh boy, I have to get this, don't I? And she goes, yeah. You wore it very well. I We were in Memphis and we went, everything moved slow as molasses there. So I bought this thing and we were going to leave and we got to the airport when we usually do, which is about five minutes before the cutoff and they won't let you in. But the woman was just seeing one person who she was taking forever. And we kind of said, hey, do you mind if we, and long story short, the molasses pace made us miss that flight. So we had to stay an extra day. So we went to Beale Street and we, Kate and I went to college. So we've known each other for like over 20 years, proposed to her under the rock at LACMA. And, you know, it's it's been a storied history, but it's just been so amazing. And and the jacket is what brought it all together. The jacket is what brought it all together because, thank you, man. See, you're a great host. So we started in college, and and so we we party. I just you try and figure out the word I want to We party. So we know how to party. Sometimes we'll slip back into that college thing. So I had this jacket. I put it on. We went to Beale Street. And uh, we were listening to blues and drinking, and it was just so much fun. 
And this guy who was playing the blues, it's this great little blues club, sort of down the street from the really famous marquee. We went and we thought it was so amazing. We were just hanging out, loving it. He saw the jacket and he mentioned it. And then he came, then he did almost a blues song, kind of mentioning it. And I went up there and I, I said, you want to try that? You want to wear the jacket? He tried to fit perfectly. And then he started doing the blues and he did a full song about it. And we just saw his face, the confidence that it brought him, the excitement that he had. He felt like a fucking star in this, this jacket. And so we were drunk enough. And this, I guess, talk about a movie star move. We tipped him the jacket. We tipped wow. him in the jacket. So the one you wore to the party was a replica jacket. It was the second... <laughs> jacket that we got in the morning we woke up and we were like whoa that was an expensive jacket and a great tip uh and so i mean it was like a five thousand it was a very expensive jacket but that's kind of we'll get drunk and tip a blues guy a blues musician a, a jacket because that's kind of our style and we saw how happy it made him and i bet to this day he's like this jacket yeah i got this from the guy from yogi bear 3d well so while you were wearing that jacket it made me realize that you definitely did not have the uh, off-duty celebrity baseball cap and sunglasses look rocking. I mean, you had a real, yeah. you have a distinctive style. And I would imagine that people recognize you on the street and come up to you sometimes. So I will not wear a, a jacket like that <laughs> outside. In fact, this suit is like a little bit off uh, off kilter for me. But no, I do the baseball cap and the, you know, the tinted sunglasses. They're actually my glasses. And I'll do that and try and be unassuming, but it doesn't really work that well because I'm gigantic, first of all. My hair is very recognizable at any length. And then the thing that really just makes it impossible is my voice. So even during the pandemic, when I would have a, a face mask on, people would recognize me. Or if they didn't really, as soon as I would talk, they would say, I thought it was you. Yeah, yeah you're TJ Miller, right? Well, what are, what are the best and the worst of those interactions look like? Is it is it just the, the unimaginative, hey, I, I love what you do. I'm a big fan. Or are they quoting lines to you or shouting, Bachman, out of a car window? I mean, yeah. what, what's the best and the worst way that, that, that people interact with each well, other? Well, right now, actually, I just did a special where I talk about the different levels of fame. It's called The Gentle Giant, and it'll be out on YouTube in like probably a few months. Um, you know, I talk about those levels of fame, and it's all kinds of things, and then fame changes as time goes on. So in the beginning, it's almost all bad because, especially if you're on television, it was Mike Vogel, who I was in the film Cloverfield with. He's so funny, and so she's also in She's Out of My League. And he was the first to tell me the theory that if you're on television— you're sort of free, you know, and they get to see you every week. So they feel a lot of ownership over you. And you're in their bedroom or their living room. Yeah. And it's a small screen. And so if you're on, if you're in movies, then they see you in these, this huge screen. And so you seem more unapproachable. You seem kind of larger than life. And then in television, you seem smaller than life, kind of almost. And so I've done both, you know, and, and had kind of really big visible projects in both. And the kind of, yeah, so in the beginning, everybody wants a picture and they can't imagine why you wouldn't want to take a picture with them because you're very lucky that they even recognized you, yeah. you know? And so then you you have to take the photo. And then and they 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 don't know you as your name. Hey, you're that guy. And then eventually it's, Ehrlich, Ehrlich Bachman. You come over, you're like, hey, I'm T.J. Miller. Like, no, you're yeah. Ehrlich, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so you kind of do that for a little while. Then people start to maybe not, demand a picture, but they'll be more polite and, and ask for one. 
it's a growing, changing, there's a metamorphosis all the time with the fame. And now I'm at a point where I would say a few years ago, it would be, it began that it was like, are you TJ Miller? And so my name came into the mix. And now people will say, you're Fred in Big Hero 6. There's a girl that I brought on stage in Rhode Island and she like, almost had a breakdown. She was like so nervous and excited. It was all because I was Fred from Big Hero 6. She did not care about Silicon Valley, could care less Stand about no. Deadpool, any of that stuff. And so I'm at a place now where people yell like, you're a legend or things like that. And it really is kind of the TJ Miller of it. And so it's really cool. And now I'm just starting sort of post pandemic. People will not ask for a picture. So a lot of people still do. But a lot of people now are kind of like, I love your work. Good to see you. They're just excited for a fist bump. That's it. Because It's they, more of like a New York experience. That's how New Yorkers tend to deal with celebrities. I, I think that's true, but I'm finding it in other cities also. But, you know, if you were in Springfield, Missouri, they kind of, and I understand, they sort of have to say, can I get a picture with you? Because it's the only time they'll ever see a celebrity ever. And so I try and really be aware of that too. The worst experiences are, if I'm talking to Kate or we're having a romantic situation or we're having a discussion that actually is an argument, which might be a fight but I, on this particular talk show, I'm going to say it's a discussion, a heated discussion. Yeah. Okay. And um, they'll just interrupt and say, hey, man, I love you. And I'm kind of like, I'm sort of in the middle. Of, yeah, all right, all right. Let me get a picture with you. And so some other really bad ones are a guy came over and said, hey, will you take a picture with my uh, girlfriend? I said, you know, I really, uh, I'm in the middle of something right now. And he's like, man, fuck you. I didn't even know who you were, dude. <laughs> All right. My girlfriend knew you were. I didn't fucking know. You aren't even famous anyway. And it's like, okay. Like, and they, and like it's, sometimes it's that. They think that's going to hurt my feelings. Yeah. But in reality, I'm like, I, guess I, I wish I wasn't alone. famous yeah. because then your girlfriend wouldn't have told you to come over and do that. The only thing I don't like is when people touch me or are proprietary with my body, grab my shoulder, pat my back, any anything like that, that is like, feels really violating. Are autographs obsolete? Like since the kind selfie, of, does that, does that, there's, that a You thing? get big fans who collect autographs, they call them graphers, call themselves graphers. And those people will want autographed posters and images. And then of course the pop Funko dolls of which I have like three or four, which is very rare. There's a whole thing. If you can get all of my pop Funkos signed, that's like a specific category. They have a message board for that, which is like, I got in this, but I didn't have the, and I, so, I don't know what words you're saying right now. Yeah. <laughs> I could have been like, there's blah, blah, and blah. And you got to know that there's board cords and you got to be <laughs> yeah. on the tongue wrongs. Um, the ting a tang tang trongs. Sorry, not the tongue wrongs. <laughs> talking about i'm drunker than i thought when i walked in uh that's very strange too but those are the only autographs you don't yeah. have somebody come up and say hey can you sign this receipt or this napkin or something like that so you know it seems like doing stand-up comedy is such a, a purely individual pursuit and in, in terms of i assume you know you generally write your own material probably yeah. alone you perform it alone on stage you either kill or bomb alone on stage yeah. and it seems like it would be such a polar opposite experience to being in a huge Hollywood picture like like Deadpool. I mean, I guess like acting on film is more of a collaborative experience in general, but the scale of a movie like that, time is so precious, the crew is massive, the stakes are high. I mean, is is it such a different perspective preparing for a project like that? I mean, because they seem like they're so completely different. For me, not really, because the whole thing kind of comes back to improv. 
because I was an improviser in Chicago and I started really improvising when I was in high school. And I went to this sort of like inner city school in Denver, Colorado, if you can believe it, but it was metal detectors. It was zero tolerance policy for guns. It was a lot of gang activity, mostly bloods. And my drama teacher was this brilliant woman, Melody Duggan, who I kind of credit with all my success, her and uh, Mr. Madison, who uh, was my film and English teacher. And she was so like loosey-goosey, who knows, whatever, with the classes that a couple times a week, we would have like three-hour blocks where she would say, okay, everybody's just going to improvise. Well, all the gangsters that were just getting their credits, just weren't they weren't going to improvise. So they were sort of the audience. And then me and a couple other kids would just go on stage and improvise for an hour, two hours, three times a week. And then when I went to college, I was in this uh, comedy group recess and we would improvise Monday through Friday. We would work on video sketch improv from 10 to midnight, from Monday to Thursday. And we're like college students. Everybody else is partying. We're like working. And so I'm primarily an improviser and I do that in my standup. That's a big thing right now that I'm trying to educate my audience and the public about is if you come and see me do standup, it's going to be 20 minutes of improv so or like half improvised or in some cases, the entire hour is improvised. It's just completely made up. It's crowd work. It's what happened to me that day. It's my thoughts about the city. It's all that stuff. So I take that to a film set, take it on but the stand-up stage. does the, the stage. workflow of a big film set like that allow you to, to flex that skill? Completely. And when they hire me, when anybody hires me, they're hiring me for my improvisation. It's basically like hiring a writer who can just rattle off five or six lines right away. I'm going to do this this like animated uh, show with um, one of the producers of Family Guy. And in that, it's uh, it's really funny. It's like about... It's, it's just about a huge tech thing that just happened, and I'm playing an arch villain. You can see if you can decide yeah, who that yeah. might be and what we're I'm talking <laughs> about, cryptocurrency rise. Um, and they're hiring me, and in the sort of Zoom preparation kind of audition meeting, I'm like riffing ideas for episodes. I'm riffing all. So really, that's what you're hiring, and people started to understand that and get to know it. And what you have to do is just be respectful of everybody's time because when you're in Transformers 4, Age of Extinction, that is 300 people. It's a $300 million film. It's more, it's more than that. It's probably 500 people when you've got the separate sets and the B cameras, all that kind of stuff. And so that's why in stand-up, I feel that solo, it's just me. I write it, I direct it, I perform it, I edit everything. And so because of that, when I do film or television, I'm not really like gunning to be the star. It's all about me. I steal other people's lines. I want to be the number one guy because I have that in stand-up. And so I really like both. And in a film set, I'm actually probably just as comfortable because when you're an improviser, you're working with six other people or 10 other people. So generally when you, when you get booked for a big movie like that, they, they, they know what they're getting in terms of they're going to give you a long leash to be able to improvise. But at the same time, you get to exercise that skill set during your standup. And ultimately like you kind of understand you're, you're in service of the film rather than your own standup. Absolutely. So the way that I do it is I'll do the lines that they wanted. So on Silicon Valley, I do it as written. I'll do another take or two, whatever they want until they feel they got it. And then I say, okay, now can you just let me riff? And they go, okay. And then I get like two or three or four or five takes. It's what I call a joke slot, which is a place where there's definitely a joke. And so I'll rattle off five different. And the best is voiceover 
Because in voiceover, we have sort of an unlimited amount of time and an unlimited amount of takes because it's digital. And so in like How to Train Your Dragon, especially the television show, we'd get to a joke slot and I would do like 15, 20, 25 different things, rewrite the entire line because they animate to your voice. And so wow. that is the most fun because I have the longest leash, as you put it, because you're a big dog metaphor guy. We've always known that about you. You do the little doggy sort of stuff like that. Big, big dog coming in is what you said when I first got here. You do a lot of barking when you're excited. And so I get the longest leash in those kind of voiceover settings. That's why I'm excited about this show that's coming up. Um, but yeah, stand-up for me, now I realize I'm most comfortable at it. And in some ways, I was talking to a guy in Rhode Island who opened for me uh, and opens for me pretty frequently. And he's really fun. His name is Brian Plum. He and I were talking and he was like, oh, but you're such a great actor. I go, yeah, but I think I'm a better stand-up than actor. And he was like, oh, definitely. It was the first <laughs> time that I kind of heard that. Yeah, I think some people would be offended, but I'm not really, I don't, it's not important to me to be a great actor. It's not important to me to win an Academy Award or something. When I won a Critics' Choice Awards, I kind of made fun of it in my acceptance speech. Much more important to me is a, to be a great stand-up comic, well, that's, that's and that's who you. I look to. Like, what's what's your relationship with stand-up comedy versus acting? Because you've you've had some big roles, you've been in some big films. I would suspect that you don't have to do stand-up. You don't have to go through the agony of developing new no, stuff. Right, you don't yeah. have to traipse across the country. You don't have to risk bombing, but but you do. And it seems like there's a common theme amongst a lot of comics that become successful actors. They often tend to gravitate back towards comedy, and I would suspect it's partly because they just truly love it. But is there also an, an element of feeling like they have to prove themselves? In, in other words, like they're kind of almost saying like, listen, I may get to drive this big race car now, but don't get it twisted. I'm still a mechanic at heart. You know, like yeah. I, I'm not just a pretty face. At the face, end of the day, I'm words. a dog walker. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, do you feel like you have... Yeah, with the do you, <laughs> dog metaphor, canine metaphor. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I like it too. But I mean, do you feel like you have something to prove? And Do you have to prove that you're funny after you're in a big role? I don't. I think that it's another thing that I've talked to other people about. And I think Chappelle went through it and I've talked to Louie about it. And you see like Adam Sandler did it. And I think at the end of the day, some of us just identify as comics. I love Patton Oswalt said one time, he said, they don't understand. We don't do the stand up to get the film roles. We do the film roles to get people to come and watch our stand up. I think that really applies to me. Although the reason I want to do film and television is you can make, so just quickly, I have a bachelor's in psychology, but sophomore year I decided I would pursue comedy and acting, but primarily comedy. When I waited out, I'm ethically, I'm a utilitarian. So you want to make the most amount of people the most happy. If you look philosophically, psychology, you can make maybe a hundred, 500 people really happy, but you'll profoundly change their life ideally. But with film and television and advertising and voiceover and stand-up, I can make millions, really actually hundreds of millions of people was, happy. But millions for of two dollars? Hours. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Uh, no, and it's funny, you know, I said to my buddy Cash Levy, I have a podcast called Cashing In with TJ Miller. I hope everybody can tune in. It's Cash Levy is one of the funniest people I've ever met. And um, he has a, a podcast, but he has trouble getting guests. Uh, I don't know why people may not like him or but I've been the only guest on the show for seven years. So really subscribe so to that show. I'm just a guest and have been every single episode. Um, but you know, I feel like I can make hundreds of millions of people laugh for 30 seconds, you know, or an hour 
or half an hour or two hours. And so to me, that was the most amount of people, the most amount of happiness compared to psychology. And off of the $100 million cash levy, I said to him, how much do you think I made for Transformers Age of Extinction? Just like, I just want to know, but you know, I, I've never asked him about that. He goes, I don't know, $700,000. And I was like, what? And I really, it was not even a fraction. It was, it was less than one-tenth of that. And so... It is interesting because if you're in it for the hundreds of millions of dollars, like people hear about, that only happens if you can sell you can hard tickets off. as a movie star. And even when I was the star of Office Christmas Party, it was still Jennifer Aniston and Jason Bate when they were selling the majority of the tickets. So they got paid a lot more. And I think that stand-up, which is actually quite profitable, to me, the live performance component of it is why I think I'm attracted to it. Now you ask, like, why... I started to realize before the pandemic that people were getting screen fatigue. So they just didn't want to watch another Netflix show, didn't want to see another. That, And so I thought, I think live standup is going to grow. And it started growing and then boom, pandemic. Yeah. And so then people now have even more screen fatigue. Well, I heard a great quote. That, um, somebody was asking you, they were surprised when you were opting to not do the last season of Silicon Valley. And they kept yeah. on saying like, TJ, what are you doing? Don't you want to buy a boat? Don't yeah. you want to buy a boat? And then your response was, no, I want to be a Manhattan stand-up comic and live with my cool wife in NYC. That's exactly it. And, you know, let's be honest, you could probably make more money, maybe, I assume, like, you know, doing the Deadpool movies. I don't know, but you do it because you love it, right? Yeah, and I just hate fucking Los Angeles. I just hate it. And so that was another component where— if I got to a point ever where I was able to go to New York and I had a level of fame or notoriety or whatever that allowed me to, if somebody wanted me in a project, I can fly to Los Angeles. They'll, it'll be a meeting, not an audition. Let me put it that way. So when I got to that point, I just got the fuck out of LA as quickly as I could. And that was another part of it also. And yeah, I didn't want a boat. I didn't want to only fly private. What I wanted to do was be what I'm doing actually right now, which is I wanted to be a Manhattan stand-up comic and then wrote the films that I starred in and somebody else directed. And that's literally what's happening right now. Like I'm working on a Christmas movie that me and my buddy are writing that I would star in. And now I'm doing stand-up. And I, I, it's, I feel so fortunate because I can do stand-up at every single club in Manhattan. And even my funniest friends, some of who write for late-night shows and are, you know, really, really accomplished comedians, they can't do that. And it's what I always wanted to do because when I ca first came to visit Kate, I went to Dangerfields and I saw a comic get in there. It was Artie Fuqua, who's amazing. And he was like stretching and drinking water. And he goes, hey, uh, what time am I up? And they're like, you're up next. He's like, okay, good, because I have a 10.15 down at the cellar. And they were like, where'd you just come from? And he was like, comic strip. And I, then suddenly it hit me. Oh my God, this guy just did a show. And he's going to another show after he does this, this set in front of a totally packed audience. And that just blew my mind. And in that moment, I was like, that's the coolest thing you could do is be a Manhattan stand-up comic who does on a weekday four shows. I do four spots, they call it in New York, but I do four sets on a weekday. And on a weekend, my I did eight shows on a Friday once. That's my record. Wow. I mean, I, I heard a comic, basically he had a quote that was saying that the amount of comics that can fill theaters consistently and kill consistently is maybe 200 in the world. Like it's maybe a pretty one day I'll be part of that, but I'm 202. I'm close. <laughs>
but I'm not quite there. Yeah, it, it is that. It's the number of comics on the road who are touring and can really sell tickets at comedy clubs because I'm more of a nightclub comedian because of how much I'm improvising and doing yeah. crowd work and I need people to be closer to me. I like that intimacy. Um, yeah, and I'm among the very few stand-up comics who's touring and selling out and doing that consistently. And also, I think kind of like, who also wants to do that, who likes the grind, who is out on the road every single weekend, except, and I'll say this too, here's another difference between being a movie star or an actor and being a stand-up comic. If you're an actor at any level, really, movie star also, you're an employee. If you're a stand-up comic, you're an employer, you're your own boss. And you work with the comedy clubs and the theaters. An actor works for a studio because they're fronting the money. Well, I'm always I'm always really fascinated at the difference between the on-screen persona and the off-screen persona of actors, but comedians specifically. And it seems like the spectrum is larger depending on who the person is. But so when you and I met, we were at a Christmas party. We ended up talking for probably you know 15 minutes, and you weren't funny at all. And I, and I mean that as a compliment, actually. Thanks so much, you know and I, mean? I hope I've, <laughs> I've confirmed that during this show. <laughs> Is that right back there? You see, he's giving a thumbs up. No, Three but, jokes maximum, I think I've, I've shot off, but no, fired I mean, off. The, the point I'm getting at is that like, we're just, we're two actual people having a genuine conversation and I wasn't expecting you to be on and to dance for me or to, to, to entertain me, you know? And, and I'm curious, like when you're hanging out with comedian friends, what's that like? Is it, is it gauche for magicians to do magic? For other magicians, you or is funny? it the opposite? I know this because I know a lot of magicians. I'm yeah. a member of the Magic Castle. I'm not a magician. I'm a juggler. I mean, I was using it as a metaphor, but go for it. No, they always do tricks for each other. And then with comedians, well, here's the first thing. When you meet somebody who's a civilian, which is what we call you guys, it would be irritating if I was like, blah, 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 blah. And if I came on the show and I was just trying to be on and jokes and all that stuff, I just, I don't think that's, and from listening to your podcast before doing it, I knew that that's, this is not the morning show. It's the morning zoo with the morning time fart song. It's, I do that in other contexts, you know, but with other comedians, yeah, you're kind of just joking because you're funny and they have a good sense of humor. So right before I came over here, I'm doing two shows tonight and one of them the, these two comedians that were doing it sent me a video telling me to go fuck myself because I said I was going to show up and then I didn't. And so I said, okay, I'm doing the show tonight. And so we're on this text chain with like four people and we're just all fucking with each other and joking with each other. And so I think it's not gauche. It's what level do you do it? So if you're trying to be funny and you're trying to get the most laughs and it's a, it's about sort of yourself, and then that gets to be too much. And those people tend to get alienated. You just I mean, the well, other comics are like, yeah, I don't well, like com that is guy. it frowned upon? Will comics will a comic call you out if you pull a bit out of your back pocket and try oh, to play yeah. off? No, you cannot do that. That would be that's more like the magician thing where you're like, hey, I'm working on something right now about. And then you'll say the subject. You won't even really do the joke unless it's a comic who's a writer like Mark Norman or Mike Kaplan or something. They'll sort of say the joke. But for the most part, what we all do is say, actually, I'm working on something related to that. And then then you would say the topic. But yeah, it, it's You're different. More seeking and some people don't want to do that. Yeah, totally. It. And yeah, yeah. Input or just kind of bring it up and saying, I'm actually working on something about that. I think of an example of that, but like recently, oh yeah, recently I was talking about how people say they have get such bad hangovers, and I never get hangovers. And I said, "Well, are you drinking water?" 
And they go, no. I go, well, if you just drink water while you're drinking, then you won't get a hangover. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. And I'm like, are you going to do it? And they're like, yeah, maybe. I'm like, I just gave you the answer to this situation. And I go, well, if you're really hungover in the morning, just drink a lot of water. And they're like, yeah, usually I have a hamburger, you know, like something greasy. And I was like, yeah, and drink water. And so that's like not a fully formed bit yet, as you can see, because no one listening laughed out loud. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there. <laughs> that's a thumbs down. That's a completely it's, it's different still situation. still a little dehydrated, but. It's, it's still a little dehydrated. See, yeah. I got to add that. Can I use that? Take that tag. That's, that would that's, be, that's my gift to you. That's the J-Dog tag. Roo, roo, roo. Uh, and so I, uh, so that would be the extent of what we would do outside of that. It is true. It's really a solo pursuit of, I come up with something, I write it down in my notebook, then I'll do them and I work them out on stage. So I have something about a couple's therapist that Kate and I saw, and that's just a thing where I wouldn't write out the joke. I just keep doing it over and over. And after about 10 times of doing it, I want to apologize to the first nine audiences that heard it. I know some of you are listening. Uh, after about 10 times of doing it, then it's like ready. And then I'll put it in the act if I like it and I'll keep doing it. And then after about another 15, 20 times of doing it, then I start like shrinking it down and getting rid of anything that like gets a laugh, but maybe I don't really like need refining it. Refining it. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Cutting the fat is what some people call it. You know, I guess you would say like barking at the tree <laughs> till the bark falls down. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <Just> <laughs> canine metaphors. I'm going to put an end to this one. Um, <laughs> no. So, okay. So I'm, I'm going to get back to dear Jonah for a second. Um, you had a, a comedy special I, called— I don't think he's going to put an end to it. I think <laughs> I think his bark is bigger than his bite. Sure. Hey, quit pissing on my leg, all right? So, Hell so. yeah! That's the one, baby. Where am I? That's I just, the one. I know. I've, I, these jokes don't have any teeth, so it's time to just move forward. Yes! Um, so you, <laughs> you he have may, a— He may be putting an end to it with that one, I think. You— you have a comedy special that was on uh, YouTube called Dear Jonah. Yeah. And, you know, it turned out it was a really kind of unique show in it's an un really unique. In a un yeah. very unexpected way. Yeah. And for those who haven't seen it, you had an audience member who was in the first row who kept heckling you and you ignored it for a while. And when you finally engaged with this person, you became clear very quickly that a, he was a big fan, but also yeah. that he was developmentally challenged. Yeah, I think it's, and yeah. you ended up kind of making him a character in the show. Like he yeah. became a part of the act, and then he became kind of the star of the show. Yeah, which is why it's so absolutely unique. And yeah. and it ended on a very like sweet emotional high note, and it, yeah. it was a really great show. But what I found most fascinating is watching you navigate how to deal with this person in real time, because there was definitely an awkward point when the audience realized what his situation was. Yeah, exactly. And they were like, oh, fuck, how is TJ going to respond to this? And you did it very compassionately and, you know, very, very kindly. But it was, it was really interesting, and it shed a lot of light on how much experience and how much time it must take to be able to read an audience and adapt your act on a dime like that. And it's not just about saying funny material and getting a laugh in front of an audience. Like, that's baseline. But, I mean, is, is good crowd work really what separates a professional from the open micers? I mean, is that really, is that the key? I think it's part of it in the sense that, hey, how you doing? Good? Oh, I should keep going? Okay, yeah. There's a guy right outside who is just kind of watching it, and then I turn and go, how you doing? He's like, no, no, get back to it. Keep talking. You'd be like if you were watching Seinfeld and they stopped that. Do you think that's funny? Should yeah, we do yeah, that yeah, line yeah. What, What's going on over there? All right, we'll see you later, man. <laughs> I love his shirt. It was a light salmon, dark pink. 
And I I would say yes, but it also separates some pros from other pros. There are people that just do not do crowd work. That's kind of not their thing. Mark Norman would say that he's sort of one of those people. He's actually quite good at crowd work, but some people can do crowd work, some can't. Some comics can riff extensively and some cannot. And what I think is really nice is the entire New York scene, like all the Manhattan stand-ups that are just so great, really say that I can riff. I can go on stage with absolutely nothing and go on, and as Ari Shafir said, forever if I want to. And that requires crowd work and also riffing, which is just improvising off the top of the of my head. It's just freestyling. And so of those kinds of people of that level and or just that skill, I would say there's 10 working right now, maybe 15 or 20, but that's it. One of them is Cash Levy from the podcast. And there's a guy, Ian Bagg, who's a Canadian comedian. Todd Berry can maybe do it. And then I would be really hard-pressed to even think of another name right now, to tell you the truth. Steve Byrne can kind of do it. He's amazing. He used to hold the record for the number of sets in New York, which is 15. But that's it. And just people don't want to do that. They're not able to do that. And so, in fact, what you're saying, which is the ability to do crowd work, and then I'll add riffing, is it separates the pro from the open micro. It actually separates me from everyone else. That's like the thing. And so right now— That's why you're at the top of the hill right now? You're well, the, you're the... I think that's that's what makes me different. That's why you're the top dog? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was actually really good uh, <laughs> for a sad dog impression. Um, no, it's what separates me from other comedians. And I'm trying to get people to understand that I am like a jam band comic. I'm like Fish or more, I would hope, more so like the Allman Brothers. And so when people come to see me and they're starting to really understand this, if you come to three shows, they're three totally different shows. Absolutely. And I'll do some of the same material because I'm working on stuff, but even the material will be a little bit different. And so that's what I'm hoping is that more and more people decide like, oh, I'd like to see two of his shows. Or if whenever he's going to be back, I'm going to go and see him because it's going to be completely different. Other comedians will do their same act for a couple of years, like verbatim, then do a special, then start rebuilding a like a new hour and then do that for three years. And it seemed like that, that business model worked a lot better before there was so many cable outlets and, and now iPhones so and YouTube clips. and clips. Now clipped. it's TikTok yeah, yeah. and YouTube. And so more comedians are trying to do crowd work, but there aren't any, like I'm releasing a special in Spokane that's completely riffed. It's completely improvised. A special from Springfield, Missouri, which is all crowd work completely. I did a special in San Francisco, which is a combination of completely improvised and also... Um, crowd work. And so I'm I'm one of the only people that's doing like a full hour of that in, in completely different in each city. And so that's why I have videographers in every city and I kind of need to capture everything because I know I'm going to have a new hour and a half of material to put online every single time. Well, so I mean, you know, Dear Jonah was a unique special in a different way in that it was self-produced and released for free on YouTube. Yeah, and now you mentioned sure. Ari Shafir. He did the same thing yeah, earlier this year. Mark Norman was the first. Shane Gillis just did it. And, you know, these are not these are not brick wall shows. These are multi-cam, multi-night, I would assume pretty expensive to produce shows. Is, 
is that the new face? Is that the new business model for comedy? I mean, obviously you use that to generate so. ticket sales moving forward, but I mean, is, is, is the holy grail of the HBO comedy special or the Netflix comedy That's special? Gone. It's gone. That's over. It doesn't move the needle like it used to. That's over. And even a Netflix special doesn't do what it used to do. Sebastian Maniscalco did a Showtime special and because he was the only one and they kept running it. Now he's who he is. But outside of that, I mean, to me, it's less important to do a Netflix special where they're going to pay you like next to nothing and then they have it forever and it gets lost in the mix because that moment was over and it's more important to do a YouTube special. You won't make a lot of money from the YouTube views. Like Ari has like 8 million views or something and he and I talked and he's like, nobody's Venmoing me. Nobody, it's like, yeah. it's not about that. It's about tickets. It's generating sales. interest yeah, for the future seeing. shows. Yeah. And so I think that's what it is. And it's also like, you can't see Netflix in every country. YouTube is worldwide. And I just did a European tour where I did 15 cities. It's called the Mostly Europe World Tour. But it was 15 cities in 12 countries in 21 days. And I did 21 shows, an average of 21 shows. So that is the most grueling thing in the world. And Kate said to me, she goes, how can you even do that? Like, how can you do that? And I said... I, I'm just built for it and I love it. Well, I really love it. Well, that's what gets back it. to what I'm talking to before. You don't have to do that. You don't have you could, to do you it. Could, you could get some sitcom and you're going to work and, and, business hours and, and live bought, in Burbank and do yeah, your thing, Exactly, right? or warm-up comic, whatever. And I, but I, I love doing it. It's so amazing, that experience. And you don't get paid a lot. And I might have even zeroed out because I brought a videographer and started what was going to be a, a tour documentary of me doing this world tour and it became actually a documentary about these little stand-up scenes that have grown in each of these in London, Paris, Amsterdam, Helsinki, Finland. There's a whole stand-up scene where they just speak Finnish, which is totally new. And then in uh, Tallinn, Estonia, we went to kind of see what that was all about. They don't really have a stand-up scene that's growing <laughs> yet, but it was crazy just to be in Estonia and talk to people about Estonia. But so that's exactly right. I didn't need to go out there and do that. But for me, that's exciting. And for me, that audience is going to grow because of the YouTube special, because of how much YouTube like content I'm going to have from these different specials. And yeah, every everywhere I go, it's like three cameras at the least. And Dear Jonah and the Gentle Giant and Philosophy Circus, which are coming out, those are seven cameras, six operators. Those are Those are as professional as... HBO and more professional than some Netflix specials. So that's another thing is like, I also have to, when I do a real comedy special of stuff that I've been working on, to me, it's important it's for it to count. look, yeah, and it's got to look as good as a Netflix or HBO special. And that is in part as well, because people know me as a movie star or a television star, just someone at that caliber from that context. And so I want them to see that I'm not like recording this shit on three iPhones, but like- yeah. It's a big deal. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. 
Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, you know, you're talking about the comics who used to be able to just have a verbatim set and nobody would ever see it unless they were in that audience. Do you find that now with the pervasiveness of iPhone cameras and everything's recorded and YouTube, is it more, is it more difficult for you to do context-specific comedy in the sense that, so in your special, you can call a woman an entitled white bitch to her face and yeah. get away with it because the audience is there. They're in on the joke. They know that you're and respectful for women. she also knows that it's a joke. She's in yeah, on the joke 100%. and it's fun. Sarah Silverman can do a joke uh, making fun of Jews because the audience is in on it. They know she's an advocate and she's an ally. But at the same time, out of context, that stuff could be very easily weaponized. And you know, we had Roy Wood Jr. on the podcast and we we're talking yeah, about- Yeah, that was a great episode also. Thank you, thank you. But so he was talking about the, the dangers of doing comedy that critiques the black community and how delicate of a situation that can be. I mean, do you, do you think about anything like that when you're, when you're writing? I feel it's completely appropriate for me to make fun of the black culture. I feel really comfortable doing that. <laughs> and now they could take that and clip it up and weaponize it. I now have my poll quote from finally, this episode. Finally, finally. Yeah. So I, I feel like the only people I'm comfortable really making fun of is white people. And even you bring that up. It's like, yeah, it sucks. I mean, everyone's talking to all of us about this, but there's a lot of stuff that I would joke about that I don't because the media is so excited to just go after me or anybody else. And I've had really bad experiences with the media, li the media lying about me or recontextualizing things that I've said in public, all that kind of stuff. Um, and interviewed my exit interview from Silicon Valley. So I'm very aware of that and I'm very careful and nervous about it. If I see somebody videoing me, I stop the show and I take their camera, I get them, I get the, cam the camera phone from them or kick them out. And that's only because I can say something that is so benign and all they have to do is edit it together. I don't know if you saw Tar, but that was a great example of how that can be manipulated and done just at, in an afternoon. And so, yeah, I have to be really careful with it. And now even making fun of white people was something I was going to do on one of my last specials. And then I really didn't because it also had a funny Jewish component. But I'm a maybe Jew because my mother is adopted. So we don't know if she's Jewish. And so even that, Kate was kind of like, oh, man, I just I don't think you should have anything about anything that's possibly taken wrong on the Internet and so, yeah, it's a real bummer. Well, what about what about your thoughts on this concept of comedy punching up or punching down or having certain groups of people that are off limits? Because I watched the new Amy Schumer special, yeah. and she goes 
in on Alec Baldwin and his wife, Hilaria, for allegedly adopting a fake Spanish accent, you know? So apparently it's, it's perfectly acceptable to make fun of them because they're rich and they're famous and she's from Boston and she identifies as a Spaniard. But, you know, try doing a bit about a biological male who identifies as a woman, like ask Dave Chappelle how well that went over, you know? Right, I mean? So exactly. there's definitely power dynamics kinda, that affect how people view humor. And it's I mean, also weird that she can do that. And part of it is that she's a woman. So because she's that, it's a little bit softer that she's doing this thing and she's a celebrity. I haven't seen the special, but if she's saying that she's from Boston, identifies as a Spaniard, then I think she's kind of joking. And then the question is, is she being ironic going in? I, I haven't seen the special. She goes in, she's she's unabashedly, she's, she's, she's definitely trying to eviscerate them. There's there's a there's a callback, there's a purpose for it, but yeah. she's she's genuinely being unkind, put it that way. Yeah, and so I don't like that. And I don't like if you're unkind to anybody. Punching up should be about taking people down a notch in terms of society, not being unkind to them as human beings. Nobody, you know, it's if if somebody is, and also making fun of an accent, it's not like they, it's not like Alec Baldwin, like, punched somebody in the face. Um, it's, <laughs> it's not like he shot somebody. You know, no, 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 it's not. But, you know, it's, it is, I think, in general, I shy away from being unkind. So with hecklers, I'm never mean. I never like, yeah, it's it's that. It, it's what I did in the, oh, good, an entitled white bitch. I've always wanted to see one right. Well, that's not real. And yeah. I'm not really being unkind. Like, ah, oh, you stupid fucking entitled white bitch. You can tell that th what's behind it. I was hosting uh, TechCrunch, the techies or something, this, even when I was on Silicon Valley. And this girl had brought her dog in. It was Travis Kalanick's girlfriend. And she's kept talking and heckling and just being, and she was so entitled. And finally I told her to be quiet and she didn't. And then I said, oh, well, I'll, every, yeah. And everybody in the audience is like, this bitch is from Palo Alto, you know? <laughs> and then they took that and said that I'd called her the B word and I had been disrespectful and misogynistic and all this stuff. Well, I was pretending to be the audience saying that. I was not saying that. But that's how touchy people can be, and that's how much they want to sense. Did it comedy. land? Did it land in the room? Yeah, people laugh. Of course, yeah. I mean, they, yeah, because they are like that bitch probably is. They from knew Palo that they Alto. knew the context, and yeah. they knew that, yeah. And they saw her behavior, but in the write-up afterwards, it didn't say Travis Kalanick's girlfriend was being rude and heckling. They just left that part out because it's like, what is the best clickbait? And that's kind of what this is. And so I think you know to summarize all this because I could talk about this for hours. It's a really tough time to be doing comedy for a lot of different reasons. And we find ourselves either self-censoring and being really careful about what topics we get into or kind of saying fuck it and then risking being completely um, ostracized, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, it's really well, tough. Well, I mean, I just thought that was a that was a really interesting example of Amy Schumer because it was a couple that just seemed like it was like a—, a, a like open season on those two because yeah. they're white and they're rich and they're famous. Whereas like there's comedy to be mined from every situation, whether it's the trans community or rape or Holocaust. If you don't think that's true, watch Anthony Jesselneck. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Like if it's done with humanity and yeah. if it's done with intelligence, you should be able done, to joke about and if anything. if it's done with irony. Yeah. And so I think one of the things is I don't do any jokes about rape. There's certain stuff that I don't find funny. And again, back to my philosophy, I don't want anybody in the audience to be, to be uncomfortable. Yeah. I just don't want that. I don't want anybody to leave saying like, well, I'm, I feel sad because I'm doing it for the audience. I'm doing it to make them feel happy. I don't know that Anthony Jeselnik is. 
I think he's doing it to prove a point. He's I, trying to almost like to, to take the challenge. But it's also like, it's also about him, and I think he'll openly talk about that. Where it's like, I don't give a fuck, and I'll show you, you know. And I can joke about whatever I want. So that's great. He's an incredible comedian. He's such a funny comic. I mean, he's not a great guy. You know, he's probably the worst guy I've ever met in my life, but you can tell that from his thing. So anyway, so I can joke about Anthony Jeselnik because he's joking about those things, sort of. But I I want people to leave happy. So a, a conundrum here is I have this joke that's great. Mark Norman said he loves it. And that's it's one of the few jokes I have that is like edgy, but really well written, conceptually really cool. And I told my mother about it and she, because it's a pro-choice, pro-life joke. My mother, though, said, I just, I, I don't think you should be doing that joke. And I said, why not? And she kind of gave me two reasons. But one was, you know, that's going to make some people unhappy. They're going to look back maybe at experiences they've had. If you did have an abortion, and I frame it like that, then somebody who had an abortion and feels bad about that abortion is going to leave not happy, maybe. I don't know that, but maybe not happy. And so I've kind of stopped doing it. And it also doesn't really fit with me because I don't really do like dark comedy. I can do it for sure. That's not But that's not, well, it's not really what people expect from me. That's not what they're paying me to do. So it sucks. But it's like the reason I bring it up on the show is it really does beg the question, brings up like, is it okay to joke about that? Is that dark humor all right to joke in front of an audience? And then if you can't take it as a joke, even if you've had a bad experience with this particular issue... Should you still be open to laughing at it? Should I be helping people laugh about the tragedies that have occurred in their life? Or should I be helping them just laugh and forget those tragedies? And what people pay me to do and what I prefer to do is just lift them out of that tragedy and then kind of let them just have nothing but happiness and laughter for like an hour. And then afterwards they can go back to the, and to I their also, shitty lives back at home. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I go back to my shitty life back at home. Yeah. And so I kind of, want to say to people in the audience, if somebody heckles and heckles, I kick them out because I go, you know, you're no more important than anybody else. Everybody in here is important. Everybody has something shitty going on. Everybody's uncle has cancer. Everybody's parents are getting older. Everybody doesn't feel good about this. Everybody feels wronged by somebody else. Everybody wishes that they have a better. We all have that. Every single person. And this is and their I've time to get close, away from that. Yeah. And I've been close to the most famous people, the richest people, the most important people in cryptocurrency or all these things where you think, well, it can't be bad. And it's not true everybody's life is kind of fucking shitty. Wow. And a private plane doesn't change that. And every single person alive needs to like laugh and, and be taken out of it for a little while. And that's why I feel really privileged to be able to be a comedian because I think I'm one of the people that can do that. Well, that's that's amazing. Um, well, we always like to end the podcast by asking the guests to- Do the fart song. <laughs> no. Do the big dog. Nope. <laughs> to- to plug something that they're not directly involved in that they feel isn't getting enough attention, whether it's a book, a movie, a show, a comic, a social cause. Is there the something you want to thing, shout out? You know, the first thing that came to, not, to mind was Norm MacDonald's memoir, be it uh, autobiographical, fictional, or both. But I had the privilege to talk. He's probably my favorite stand-up comedian of all time. And... I had the privilege, especially as, at this point as the, a comedian of this age and this caliber and everything, uh, I had the privilege to kind of become friends with him, a lot about cryptocurrency and gambling, actually. But he said some incredible things about me and, and my potential as a comedian. 
And that was the most flattering thing anybody had ever said to me. And I also talked to him once and I said, I read your book and I thought it was amazing. It's true. It's like Dostoevsky. It's like one of the great comedic uh, novels of all time. And he knew that he mentions it in Hitler's dog, that special. And I said, I really is one of the What's greatest. The title? It's, uh, it's called um, Based on a True Story. Norm MacDonald, Based on a True Story. It's the only book that he's written. And so he said to me, when I said that, because I truly think it's like a, it's like one of the most important pieces of comedic literature. It's like Swiftian. I mean, it's that level. And he said, yeah, I just wish more people would have uh, read it, would have seen it, you know. Wow. And I said, well, it was, I think it was on the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, it was in my, from my view, it was incredibly successful. And from his view, just not enough people read it. And so that would be the thing. I think everybody should pick up that book. I encourage you to get a hard copy of it because it's just so great. But in any capacity, you know, you should read it. And I, I hope that post-mortem kind of now that he's gone and, he has these things like his book and his specials and his show to live on beyond his time here, that that book especially is like a real triumph. And then I think that there's this comedian, C.J. Sullivan, who's a contemporary of mine and I travel with, and he has, just go to his Instagram. It's C.J. Sullivan was taken with underscores in between the words, but you can just Google it. And he does a sports gambling podcast. Whoa, two gambling <laughs> wrecks. Somebody has a problem. You guys must have problem. a fun time on the road. It's a lot of fun. Um, but he has a sports gambling podcast called Bottom Line Bombs, and he does a, a segment at the end called Man in the Box, and is so fucking funny. So go and follow him on Instagram. And there's so many others. I mean, my wife, Kate, who's a world-renowned artist, she's an installation artist, and you can follow her at Rose Petal Pistol on Instagram. But she's she's an example of somebody who it's like, I always say, like, if you see someone you see a piece of work or anything like that that you think is interesting, even one, just follow. Just take a moment to click and follow with me. Take a moment to hit subscribe. It takes nothing from you. And, you know, to see them grow is always really that's, amazing. That's the currency of, of support. With this, yeah, I this think that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and also, you know, however big your following is, I encourage everyone listening to tell other people about this conversational talk show, as you put it, before we got on the air. Um, because I just your, uh, you know, Roy Wood Jr. and Tom Sachs, those alone, and I've listened to all the other episodes, those alone were like so great. And I just, I, I'll tell other people about it and that's how you grow an audience. And so that's another thing, as I say, if you like CJ Sullivan, tell other people, which is what you're doing right here. So, yeah. well, TJ. Thanks for taking the time to Thanks sit down. Thanks for having me. Um, big thanks to Newsstand Studios for Thank hosting you, today. And giving the thumbs up, the thumbs down, and one time just looking away out of just sheer awkwardness. The doghouse got a little hairy there for a second. Yes! <laughs> and that's the way to end it, baby! And we're going to end it there. Thanks again, man. Hope Thank to see you soon. Thanks, Jay. Big J Dog. Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug contains original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan. Mixing and sound design by Matt Boynton at Ultraviolet Audio. Logo and branding by Italic at italic-studio.com. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again, and be sure to check out the archive and tune in for future conversations.